Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the honor today of talking to a person who's been a friend of mine for a long time, one of the leading historians in our country today, Dr. Mark A. Knoll. Mark is the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Now, you're actually here to give our World Christianity Lectures at Beeson. That's an annual lectureship we have, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, down the road on this podcast. But right up front, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, how you came to faith, your calling as a historian, anything like that. I am a Midwesterner, born in Iowa, and... uh could contend to uh, retire to Iowa. Uh, I think it's a beautiful place in the world, which not everyone agrees with me on that uh, sentiment. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm not sure a whole lot of it stuck. I was probably more interested in uh, basketball and, and girls and other uh, adolescent uh, typical interests. I did attend uh, Wheaton College, where there was good instruction. But I think the realization of myself as a sinner in need of God's grace and an understanding of the freedom of that grace in Christ came after I graduated from college, was getting ready to be married, was being introduced to conservative Presbyterians through my wife-to-be, Maggie. And uh, from that time, I I have felt uh, great uh, joy and confidence in being a Christian. Uh, What I think I gained from the Presbyterian side was a sense that uh, vocation could be a calling from God. And my vocation is to serve as a historian. Asking why I'm interested in history is a difficult question. I certainly am. I read an awful lot as a a young person, as a young adult. I was an English major in college, but then decided at some stage I should probably try to do what I was most interested in. And so I've I've been very pleased to live as a a vocational Christian historian for uh, the last, wow, four or five decades now. Yeah. Now, you attended, I believe, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and then somehow you got to Vanderbilt for your doctoral. Say a little bit about that academic pilgrimage. Yes. uh, uh, Trinity Seminary in the late 60s and early 70s was new. It was uh, poorly funded. It was operating a shoestring, and I found out later came actually close to folding a couple of different times. But it had a tremendous faculty. Uh, Kenneth Conser had pulled together a range of faculty, not unlike the modern Beeson Divinity School. There was, str- there was a strong Lutheran presence, there was a strong Presbyterian presence, many generic evangelicals, many Baptists, a few Methodists, quite a few representatives from overseas. I t- had a two-year uh, program in the history of Christianity that uh, was, was a wonderful preparation for someone who'd never formally studied history before. We had uh, Professor H.D. McDonald from Britain, who'd written a splendid set of books on the, on the question of the Bible in British history. Harold O.J. Brown, who was coming back from Germany after having participated in, in European uh, church life. John Warwick Montgomery, a very serious uh, scholar of the Lutheran tradition, introduced uh, subjects in the Lutheran tradition. And then I was probably most affected by David Wells, who at the time was uh, a church historian, later became a, a, a theologian but who was a very effective uh, presenter of the gospel message in, in history and, and an, a good example of uh, scholarly devotion combined with Christian devotion. Went to Vanderbilt then to do the Ph.D. in, uh, it turned out, American religion. I thought I was going to do Reformation studies, but the, the professor, uh, Wilhelm Pauk, who did that, was on his way to Stanford by the time I got there. Mm. 
but very much enjoyed then the, the chance at Vanderbilt to do advanced uh, research in American religious history, although in my case it was American history of, of Christianity. I wrote a dissertation on uh, uh, churches of New England during the American Revolutionary Era, much enjoyed that, and was able to actually secure a position to teach history, which was seemed like a great luxury, uh, and have enjoyed teaching history since that time. Now, when you and I first became acquainted, you were teaching on the faculty of Wheaton College, where you served for many years, I believe. Now you're at Notre Dame. Talk about that transition from Wheaton to Notre Dame. I was privileged to teach at Wheaton for 27 years, to have uh, excellent uh, students uh, as the undergraduates and, and a few excellent students in, in the master's program. That uh, opportunity was a good one because it gave space to uh, work hard at professional side of academic life, but also at trying to figure out what might be specifically Christian ways of, of approaching academic life. And that uh, combination, though far from unknown in the past, had become somewhat uh, less common in, in the future. And it was uh, a real uh, blessing in retrospect to have uh, administrators and, and the department chair, chairs at, at Wheaton who were encouraging uh, those of us who wanted to try to explore scholarly means to uh, bear witness to the, to the Christian faith. The uh, move to Notre Dame was uh, prompted by the retirement of George Marsden. George was one of the several confessional Protestant uh, faculty that Notre Dame had begun to hire in the 1980s and 90s. Notre Dame is a Catholic institution and very much uh, committed to maintaining its Catholic distinctives. Non-Catholics tend to get lumped together, uh, but the, the, the university realized that there were uh, scholars like Alvin Plantinga, scholars like George Marsden, who as Protestants could contribute to the, to the mission of the university. And, and when uh, George uh, began to announce his retirement and, and the department looked around for someone who might continue the excellent work he was doing, not entirely with Protestant students, but mostly with Protestant students, it seemed like a good opportunity to continue the scholar's vocation in this new place. I've been grateful to the ministerators and the chairs at Notre Dame in the same way I have been to Wheaton for the space to do work and the encouragement to do both excellent academic work and then the openness to do the Christian side of things as well. Now, Mark, 18 years ago, you published a book that got a lot of uh, press at the time and continues, I think, to be an important uh, marker for discussion about evangelicals in the academy and evangelicals uh, and scholarship. It was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Now, just last year, you published, I think, what is now your most recent book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind. I'd like for you to talk about those two books and the, the trajectory in between the almost two decades of their publication. Scandal of the Evangelical Mind was prompted by um, uh, excellent administrators. Um, Nathan Hatch, who at the time was uh, at the University of Notre Dame, and David Wells and one or two other people had contacts with the Pew Charitable Trust, and they, they maneuvered a, a grant that was designed to uh, encourage particularly evangelical Christians to move more deeply into the, uh, the content of their faith and the content of the academic disciplines. This grant led to the publication by Neil Plantinga of a very interesting book on sin called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It prompted the beginning of the series of books from David Wells that, that led on to five or six volumes, a very serious uh, interrogation of uh, um, particularly American evangelical church life. 
And my, my challenge was to write about more generally the intellectual landscape in, that evangelicals inhabit. And uh, I don't think it was uh, a revelation to, to, at the time to say that um, though evangelicals were doing many good things in the church and many good things in society, there was not much of a concentration on uh, the intellectual life. Wheaton College administrators had made it possible to, to do uh, seminars with faculty uh, focusing on specifically Christian doctrines and their bearing on the intellectual life. And it seemed that it, would, it was a, a good challenge to try to write a book that uh, explained why evangelical Christians did so many things so well, but were not particularly adept and not particularly at, at ease with, with the intellectual life. So the, the challenge of the book was to relate a history that explained how the, the central organizing themes of Christianity were excluded from American, or, or marginalized, I guess, from American universities, and to explain why it was that certain themes and, and tendencies and emphases in evangelical history had uh, played down the importance of, of intellectual life. The scandal of the title was intended in, in two sense. Uh, it, it, it was, and in my mind continues to be, a, a scandal of the ordinary sense of the term that uh, people who claim to worship a God who made and sustains everything and provides uh, redemption for everything in, in Jesus Christ, and here the Colossians 1 passage is, is very important, it was a scandal that such people uh, did so little at the, uh, the deep stu studies in, in uh, academia. The second sense of scandal, however, was to say that the scandal of the cross uh, meant something uh, significant, should mean something significant for scholars, as well as for uh, Christians in, in everyday life. The second theme was not as developed in the first book. I, I ran out of time. I, I, I was uh, trying to wrap things up in a hurry. There's just a little bit in the last chapter about how a, a distinctly Christological perspective might be able to help those who believe in Christ for redemption to also use the redeeming Christ as a model, motive, and, and mediator of, of intellectual life. Again, I'm grateful to the Wheaton College administrators for allowing to have a couple of faculty seminars again where we focused on uh, the meaning of, of the, the great Christian creeds for the potential of scholarship, and then in a very slow-paced academic way to keep reading a little bit and keep, keep trying to uh, uh, add to that. So the second book is much more positive. It's trying to say if, if we believe in Jesus Christ as God's Son who came to earth through redemption of humans, and in particular, if we uh, agree that the formulations of belief about Christ in the early church remain valid to this day, what do those formulations do for us in, in helping approach questions of intellectual life. So the first part of the book is, is a kind of simple exposition of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and, and the Chalcedonian definition of the two, person, the two natures and one person of Christ. And then the rest of the book is trying to say, let's take those matters as real and apply them in uh, modern intellectual life. So there's a chapter on historical study and what, what the Chalcedonian definition might give us in historical study. Mm. There's a chapter on science and how Christian believers who trust that the Lord God is the creator and sustainer of all things and who follow Christ, who, who said regularly, come and see, come and see mm. uh, the realities of the world, how 
following those biblical and creedal guidelines will lead to a much calmer, a much more relaxed, a much more accepting attitude toward modern science by evangelical communities. But the book is really not intended to pontificate and to tell people what they ought to think about the different academic areas, but to urge uh, those who are competent in the different academic areas to live out their Christian faith, to live out their belief in the Trinity, in, in the great uh, creedal formulations of Christ's person and work. I have a, just an observation I've made about you and your writing. and your, you know, like, like you, I am very appreciative of the Reformed tradition. I'm a Baptist. I'm not uh, in a Presbyterian setting. But uh, I love Calvin. I love uh, the Reformed uh, tradition. But in my life, I've been drawn more and more, the older I get, to Luther. There are some things in Luther that just resonate at a very deep level. Now, it seems to me, I may be imposing this on you, uh, that you also resonate with Luther in certain ways. Could you respond to that? Yes. Uh, in fact, I do, although as I, uh, I read more and get older and think more, I'm just a little more ambiguous about Martin Luther than, than I uh, used to be. Maybe it's because... Uh, as a person growing up in uh, American evangelicalism, I've, I've become real nervous about what I would call the the ready fire aim way of, way of going about uh, evangelical life, and I see a little bit of that in, in, in uh, Martin Luther. Positively put, what uh, Martin Luther provided in the early 16th century was, on the one hand, a really serious interrogation of the Christian tradition that had come down to him. So Martin Luther is not uh, a, 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 an innovator. He's a person who's trying to go back to what is the best in the tradition, as well as what is uh, basic in, in Scripture. And on the other hand, he is very much aware of his own fallibility, his own sinfulness, his own need of redemption. The heart of Luther's theology, in my view, is his theology of the cross, in which he uh, argues that we find out the most about the triumphant God when we learn about the crucified God. We find out the most about our own hope for redemption and a, a, a life with God when we recognize our greatest inability to secure that life for ourselves. And we in a sense, uh, follow Christ on the cross and crucify our, ourselves. For the intellectual life, I uh, would like to think that what I'm urging other Christian believers to do is to be either Calvinist or Thomist with a Lutheran leaven. <laughs> the reason I say that is that in Western history, uh, at least in my view, the, the, the two great traditions for really serious contemplation of the Trinity in the relationship to the world, uh, redemption in the relationship to the world, the two natures of Christ in the relationship to the world, are the Calvinist tradition amongst the Protestants and the Thomists amongst the Catholics. Where Luther is important is to bring the drama of salvation to what in both Catholic and Reform circles can become a petty, abstract adjustment of categories rather than an existentially uh, bracing encounter with Christ in the material of the scholarship. I haven't said that very well because I, I have, I think my own academic orientation comes very much from Calvinist sources or neo-Calvinist sources or Dutch Calvinist uh, sources. And o over the years, I've come to have a great respect for the Catholics who maintain the Thomistic tradition because of its very careful parsing of categories like nature and grace, uh, the, the two natures of, uh, in, in Christ's person. But what the Lutheran leaven adds is the existential dimension that even scholars 
need to recognize their need of a Savior. Even scholars need perpetually to be seeking the forgiveness for sin and a new life, not in themselves, but, but in uh, Christ. I'm, I'm a great uh, fan of the, uh, the music of J.S. Bach mm. and, and think that the music and the existential impact of music exists in the Western tradition as it does with, with someone like Bach because he may have been one of, one of his age's best readers of Martin Luther. So not at all embarrassed to work very, very hard at his musicianship, not at all embarrassed to, to, to push back, the, we would say today, the frontiers of musicological understanding, but at the same time keenly aware, keenly appreciative of the dynamic of grace, the dynamics of redemption, that a, a deeper understanding of the Christian faith abstractly gives concretely to the believer. That Lutheran leaven you talk about, it seems to me, comes from Luther's emphasis, I would say overemphasis, but I think he gets it just about right, on the incarnation. So he's not afraid of the visual arts. He's not afraid to you know, appropriate those things, and that the reform side are maybe rightly nervous about at certain points. Right. I, th- I think this is one of the great uh, lessons coming out of the Reformation for today for people who are nervous about uh, almost anything, whether it's politics, music in church, uh, what, what kind of stance to, to, to take with regard to education. The, um, the, the, the Lutheran perspective is one that focuses upon Christ and Christ's work and, and in that regard keeps all Christian enterprises grounded. The Reformed uh, I think provide categories, but can tend to be too categorical. Catholics provide uh, categories, tend sometimes to be too ascetic. Uh, Lutheran, the Lutheran uh, point of view pulls back from abstraction on the one side and mere asceticism on the other. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate the Luther teaching that, in a sense, gave the humans the right to say, if we have an, uh, an action, we have a tradition that magnifies the gospel, we must value that tradition. We don't have to wait for an explicit biblical mandate, which the Reformed wanted to see. But if if we can conclude that some human action promotes the gospel, that action then can be uh, pursued with real dedication. Now, you mentioned Bach, who's uh, also my favorite composer of all time, but you've also been very interested in the tradition of evangelical hymnody. You've written about that, and say a little bit about why hymns are important. It seems to me that might be something we're about to lose, or at least in the process of being uh, transformed in some ways. What what about hymns? I was privileged at Wheaton College to teach two or three times a course of hymnody with my uh, colleague Bill Femister from the conservatory and privileged at Regent College in Vancouver to do fairly recently a course on hymns where I was uh, delighted to have my brother Craig play the piano uh, with the course. And the commitment to hymns is, I think, uh, maybe an echo of Lutheran commitments because the great great hymns, and of course there were a lot of non-great hymns, the great hymns were wonderful teaching devices, but teaching with emotion. I happen to be the vice president of the Calvinist for Charles Wesley Club <laughs> and uh, believe uh, that Charles Wesley is, is just wonderful because of the depth of Christian doctrine that he is able to communicate in the lyrics of his hymns without a whole lot of fuss and bother, but with tremendous direction, force, and, and input. And then, realizing that he wrote his hymns to be sung, you realize that in the singing there is a a visceral, emotional effect that can drive home the the teaching of the hymns in in a really unusual way. 
It's also the case that historically the hymns have been uh, wonderfully ecumenical, even be almost before they were dead. The serious Calvinist uh, Augustus Toplady, who really loathed the Wesleys, and the serious Arminians, the Wesleys, who really loathed Toplady, were singing each other's hymns. Yes. And the Wesleyans were singing Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, and Calvinists were singing Over a Thousand Tongues. And, and the, the, uh, the reason, I think, is that the great hymns coming out of almost any Christian tradition are hymns about the person and work of Christ. And I think it's C.S. Lewis has said that when believers in different traditions come closer to Christ, they come closer to each other. Yeah. Ecumenism of the keyboard. I like exactly. that. Exactly. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you're here to give our uh, annual Global Christianity Lectures. And one of the things you've done is uh, recently you wrote a very important book, I think in 2009, called The New Shape of World Christianity, How American Experiences Reflect Global Faith. And more recently, you and Carolyn Nystrom have written Clouds of Witnesses, Christian Voices from Africa and Asia which has just been awarded our John Pollock Award for Christian Biography. It's the first time a book uh, has received this award about more than one person. But uh, it's a wonderful book. If you, if you don't mind, say a word about this emphasis on world Christianity, why you're drawn to it, and in particular this book you and Carolyn have done. The roots of interest in world Christianity can, can sort of by happenstance. Uh, two things happened in, the, I think, the early 90s, mid-90s at Wheaton College. One was that we had to reorganize our curriculum. We were trying to do a one-semester history of Christianity course, and it became more and more absurd to try to do from Wesley to the present in two weeks. So we said, well, we should divide this course. Who can teach the second half? And no one volunteered, so I was stuck with that duty. And it was an opportunity to, be, to, to take advantage of what was then a trickle, now become a flood, of really interesting works on the non-Western Christian experiences. In that uh, effort, or in that assignment, uh, the second really important thing was encountering the, the, the essays of Andrew Walls, the great uh, Scottish missiologist, who, who explained a, a great deal about the, the factual expansion of Christianity around the world in the last century and a half, but even more explained theologically his sense of how important the cross-cultural transmission of Christian faith has always been. He linked that cross-cultural transmission to the first cross-cultural transmission, which was the incarnation of perfect deity as, as a human being. So I was given this assignment to uh, teach in uh, the, the recent world uh, history of Christianity and inspired by Andrew Walls. And things evolved uh, through actually Carolyn Nystrom's son-in-law, Joel Scandrett, whom you know for work with InterVarsity Press. Joel said, well, why don't you put to use some of this work in the uh, classes you're doing to, to write books on uh, world Christianity? I knew I didn't have time or, or energy or the competence to do academic books, but, but uh, with Carolyn Nystrom's help, uh, I've been able to research uh, and write at least preliminary studies. The Clouds of Witness book came, came about from, uh, again, a, a teaching need. It was relatively easy to gather the kind of statistics that David Barrett and others have pulled together about the dramatic expansion of, of Christian faith in other parts of the world. So uh, uh, you know, Korean churches with more people attending every sun Sunday than are in my entire denomination and other statistical matters, but it was harder to convey a um, specific, a grounded, a particular appreciation for what it meant to develop Christian faith, Christian character, Christian life 
in places in the world where, where this had not been done. So I'm not exactly sure where, where the idea came from, but someone, someone, myself perhaps, maybe Carolyn, maybe Joel Scandrett, uh, came up with the idea of biographical sketches, which we could do. So you, there was enough material in uh, English for the 17 or 18 people we have from Africa and Asia, uh, and that we could be we could move past what's known in Wikipedia uh, a little ways without putting the burden on ourselves of, of having full-scale academic uh, research. And we were able to write about uh, very interesting people, all of whom were significant in their own way, mm. some very different from uh, uh, North American evangelical Christianity, some more, more uh, similar, people who were involved in, in uh, evangelistic outreach, a few involved in uh, political expression, uh, two or three who lost their lives because of their uh, faith in, in Christ. And it seemed like a good vehicle to introduce to uh, audiences the same way we had been introduced through uh, scattered reading and, and individual uh, portraits. And then I think the biographical uh, form is a real good way of, of telling a story, maintaining interest, and communicating something about the broader uh, circumstances while, while the biography is being uh, narrated. It's a wonderful book by Mark Knoll and Carolyn Nystrom, Clouds of Witnesses, Christian Voices from Africa and Asia. It's published by InterVarsity Press. It's the winner of the 2012 John Pollock Award for Christian Biography. I strongly encourage you to get a copy of this book. You'll find it fascinating reading, very informative, and very challenging. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Mark A. Knoll, he is the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you, Mark, for this wonderful conversation. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>